the SIDCast loves to bring kind of under-the-radar under fascinating people to, uh, uh, to the table, to our conversation, to a wide audience, and that's definitely the case today with uh, Marisa Smith, who is a playwright, who is a uh, partner in a publishing firm in, uh, in New York, uh, who has performed in, in New York, and uh, has, uh, has, has done so many interesting things in her life. But, but you know, just as, as, as interesting maybe is the fact that she has a lot to say about a lot of topics. Um, political correctness was probably not at the top of her uh, top of her list. Uh, she's done a lot of things. She's transitioned from one career to uh, to another. Sometimes seamlessly, sometimes uh, not as seamlessly. And I suppose uh, she'd be the first to say that she's also transitioned from one husband to another uh, in uh, in a similar fashion. She tells uh, great stories. is a is a wonderful guest. Let's welcome Marisa Smith. This is Sid Finkelstein with another podcast today with Marisa Smith. Marisa, good morning. Good morning, Sid. So, you know, uh, why did I want to talk to Marisa? Because you've done so many cool things in your life. But you know where it all started, right? Right here in Hanover. Right here in Hanover. So, you know, I lived in, I lived in L.A. for six years, um, late 80s, early 90s. And everyone we met in L.A. was from somewhere else. It mm-hmm. was like they were all they were all refugees from some part, and they went for the beautiful weather, et cetera, et cetera. And the traffic kind of changed that story. You, we moved to Hanover, and it seemed like almost everyone is from somewhere else. But then I meet you, Marisa, <laughs> and you're not from somewhere else. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in Hanover. And what, what's up? How'd that ever happen? Are I you know, the only it's one? Crazy. You know? <laughs> no, in fact, but the the longer you live here, you have to admit you've found more people who. Up in Hanover. Well, I'm now. up to one, yeah. And also, a lot of Dartmouth people come here to excuse the expression to die. I mean, they retire, but that they come, but they're like bears in the woods. I mean, they come they here. They can't wait to come they back. They can't wait to come back. Right. They have this idealized version of what it but was. But few of them were born were born here. So, right. what what was life like? Uh, I won't idyllic. say the old days because you're young, but uh, when Thank you were growing you said, up. You're lying. But <laughs> <laughs> um, it was idyllic. It was idyllic. In fact, my children, I came here. I, when my young, oldest son was two, because I wanted my kids to have the same experience that I had growing up. So I'm one of the few people in the world who had a like happy, functional childhood. <laughs> so you wanted to where's the that. angst, right? Where's um, the angst? So you came back when you were when I your came kids back were when, two. When, when Luke, my oldest, was two, we moved back to Hanover. Okay, so you're, you grew from up from New York City. Oh, of course, it's yeah. required to live in Hanover yeah, at some point, yeah, right? You go there, you come back. So. Um, uh, what was, the, I mean, draw the picture but for But Hanover was idyllic. Growing up, it was idyllic. No one really did uh, lock their door. The dogs didn't have to be on leashes. Storrs Pond was basically the same as it was then, Probably. except we had a raft. There was a raft, a dock that In the you middle could of swim the pond. to, but now that's too dangerous. Like, everything is too dangerous. A raft is too dangerous. Yes. So that, you're better off just flailing in the water without any support. Well, a dock or whatever that, you know, that yes. floating thing. That's okay. no longer there at Storrs Pond. So it was an idyllic childhood. Um, people just wandered around. Kids were, I mean, I would play outdoors and I would play marbles with the, with the kids on the, in the neighborhood. We were a little, you know, gaggle of geese. And uh, it, it was just, What's everybody, it was sort of a socialistic paradise too because everybody, I know maybe that's like heresy to say. Socialistic, we're in yes. the touch school of business I here. know, I know. But the <laughs> reason I say that is because money was not an issue. People because every, everybody was wealthy. Because no, because no, ex- absolutely not. Because everyone assumed that everybody kind of had the same amount of money. Because there were not these obvious um, markers of wealth in Hanover back in the sixties and seventies. So that I mean, there that's, weren't, yeah, you know, there weren't big houses, and and there weren't. It, it just wasn't obvious if your parents had money. If your if your parents had money, they kept it. Are you allowed to say on the down low? Or I think that that's not a good term. Maybe I won't say that. They kept it quiet. I won't even go to Don't why even, that might not be. A, yeah, we're not going there. That went there. right over we're, my head. Okay, but, we're, we're, but what you're describing, Reese, is what I say to people about Hanover today. I know you're going to argue with me about that. Yeah, but I am. You come, you come to to Hanover, and people come from all over, and they they came from places where. Showing off what you had, at least a little bit, was like, I mean, L.A. Yeah. is an extreme, of course. Yeah. You know, you, you might have nothing, but you always had a nice car because you spent most of your day right. in the car, so it's required. Right. But uh, you come here and people don't really, you know, 
I remember the first time I saw a Porsche driving down the road, and it was this guy that moved up from Florida. And I figured, of course, he can't, he can't have been here long, and I'm, oh. I think he ended up selling the thing. Of course. That would be like heresy to have a, even today, probably. Well, no, today you can. So there are today a lot of people today that, that are, are well off in, in the Upper Valley. We're saying Hanover, but Upper Valley more generally. Hanover as the central hub, Norwich as well, uh, um, of course. Uh, but they... Um, uh, and they're nice houses, big houses, but people don't seem to be ostentatious. Well, about see, that. that I do disagree with because compared to the way it was, there is tremendous ostentation now. But compared to the way it was, it, it, compared to the way it was, yes. Um, well, because people do drive, you know. I don't know. Fan- I don't know what fancy cars are really much, you know. But they drive those fancy cars, <laughs> whereas before nobody had a fancy car. I mean, there just wasn't. It. it, it you really. First of all, Norwich was not what Norwich is, and Lyme was not what Lyme is. I mean, those were like the hick towns, you know? Those were the oh, farmer towns. Be, uh, talk about hate mail. I'm going to get some hate mail on the hick Why? towns. Why? Uh, I'm talking Norwich, about the old days. N- Norwich is a community of people that are very, very proud of Norwich. Okay, well, well, you may and, want to edit this out, but when I was growing <laughs> up <laughs> in the 60s Thanks and 70s, um, it well, I, I won't go there. But but Norwich was the boondocks. You know, it was the boondocks. Okay. But what I, what I was saying about socialism, which is a joke, of course, is that growing up, we every, most of the kids' fathers and mothers did sort of the same stuff. There were a lot of doctors and a lot of professors, which is the same thing right, as it right. is now. Um, and those kids whose parents uh, weren't doctors or professors, uh, they're... nobody really paid much attention to that. Do you know what I'm saying? People didn't Mm -hmm. pay attention to what you drove or what you wore Mm -hmm. or really what your parents did. Yeah, there wasn't. It wasn't status-seeking. There wasn't a a, a sense of of, um, people, you know, wanting to show where they were in the hierarchy. Okay. What I'm getting is that this is definitely a relative scale, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I look at it today, uh, 2018, and it's uh, 2019, and it's um, it's pretty. It's pr- it's not socialistic, but no, means, I know, I know. but it's uh, there, there's an equality sense. There's a there's a fairness sense. It's a little bit different. And what you're saying is it was even more, yes, even more so. So you you went to the Hanover schools, yeah, K through 12. What, what was the? It wasn't the Bernice Ray School, was it? Well, no, because Bernice A. Ray was my principal. Oh boy, <laughs> I have to tell everyone how old I. So but, uh, what Bernice was the A. Ray, what did they call the school? It was just the Hanover. It was K through twelve was in one building where the Hanover High School is now. Oh, that was K through twelve. The whole thing. Was there one room for everybody? I'm Um, I'm teasing. (laughs) (laughs) Right, and we had a wood stove and we had debris and water. Um, uh, So it was that was the whole school. There was no and Bernice Ray was wonderful and she you know paced the halls and um, it was it was great. The honor of her with when that when the new elementary schools that was a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you you remembered her as the Oh, person? I remembered Bernice A. Ray. Wow. She was like uh, from something from a children's book. Really? Yeah, she was this, you know, what was you then called a spinster. You know, she was like a priest. She was devoted to her children and mm-hmm. her school and she wandered the halls and she had white hair and mm-hmm. she was she was great. And it was very um the school I mean you went to I went to school from kindergarten to graduated from high school with the same with a lot of the same kids. Which right. is one reason why we still get together. You and still I, get together. Yeah, it's a little. How, how yeah. big was your class? You remember? One hundred and forty kids. One hundred and forty kids, and you're in, graduating. Graduating class? Hanover High. One hundred and forty yeah. kids. Wow. So um, uh, you graduate and you go see the world. So you go to university next. I graduated okay. from college. I had a big fight with my parents because <laughs> I don't think I told Ben this. I wanted to join the Ice Follies was my friend Donna. The Ice Follies. The Ice Follies. What, or maybe what, it was the Ice Capades, you know, oh, time capades. and memory. What, what, why the Ice Capades? Because I was a skater growing up. I Did you, was there a, what was it called? The Skating, skating Club, Club at Dartmouth. Was that yeah. there? Yep. That's the skating so cool because my daughter did that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, she loved it. So I wanted to join the Ice Follies with Donna, who, who did join the Ice Follies. Oh, and my parents, <laughs> that didn't go over too no. well. That was, that was a deal breaker. So, so I couldn't do that. I had to go to college. And um, You must have been a great skater. No, I was not a great skater. 
But you still all. could have joined the ice capades. I could have been in the chorus, maybe. Okay, okay. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I and Donna, been in your the friend chorus. Donna, she stayed did. in for a while. She went. She went and joined the ice. Capades. So I'm, 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 uh, I'm kind of seeing a performance orientation to, uh, yes, to you. Right? I did. I started acting do, yeah. in high school. Okay. When my boyfriend broke up with me, we're friends now, but he broke up with me, and I was devastated, uh-huh. like truly devastated, because that first breakup is devastating. But I think it's important for somebody to have a first breakup, a first heartbreak. Because you learn so much. Because, first of all, I don't think, I think the first one is always the worst one. I mean, it's just my opinion, and it's my experience. Many people tell me the most recent one is the worst one. Interesting. Well, I still haven't had a breakup as painful as it was when I was 15 or 15. So you had had this, you needed this outlet, you needed to do something. Well, luckily, I had some good friends who said, why don't you try out for a play? Uh-huh. And so basically theater sort of saved me at that point Is that in my why life. you went into theater, the first? The yeah, movie? yeah. That's really why I went into it, because um, a friend said, try out for this play, The Bad Seed. And I did, and I got the part of Miss Fern, the teacher. You remember that? Oh, God, I remember it vividly. And it really, it really enabled me to get out of this terrible, I mean, you know, I was a teenage girl. And mm-hmm. this guy had rejected me for another teenage girl. In the same school? Yes. And Out I of had the same to, 140 and kids. And I had to walk the halls and see them. And I had to see her. And I used to sit outside her house sometime. What are you telling me? And think, like, bad thoughts. Like, I, I would, like, sit outside her house and... Think bad thoughts. Yeah, I would you're, think you're, bad you're, thoughts. I didn't do anything, or I didn't do anything criminal. <laughs> but I remember a couple times, like, you know, staking out her house. That's how upset I was. Wow. I mean, I was really upset. Yeah. And now looking back, you know... Looking back, you... I realized I was just... But my parents, uh, my mother was, you know, really upset. My father was a Dartmouth psychologist. He taught it. Dartmouth in the psychology department, uh, and he okay. said to me, he said if I didn't get myself together, he was sending me to a psychiatrist. Not a psychologist. No, a, a psychiatrist. psychiatrist, because he had always said in the privacy of our home mm-hmm. that psychiatrists were nuts. So the is fact- Is that what he said? Yes, that's what he said. The psycho- this is like a joke, right? What did the psychologist <laughs> call the psychiatrist? Yeah. So, so <laughs> when he said that he was sending me to a psychiatrist if I didn't get it together, I knew I was, had to get it together. That was like pretty serious. Yeah. So did he try some of his psychological manipulations? No, no, he uh, was just you? he I was his only child. I was like falling apart and he he was very upset. He didn't know what to do. And he so, was he was a research psychologist. He knew what to do with his animals and his machines. He he wasn't he, clinical. He, he, he didn't have patients. He was not beha- yeah, he was not a clinical psychologist. So anyway, so theater is is it, theater is fantastic for children. I mean, I think it's one of the best things you can do for kids. So you were doing that. This is uh, Hanover. It wasn't called Hanover High. It was Hanover yeah. School or something. No, Hanover High. It was called HHS Hanover. Hanover High School. Even though it was K twelve, they were different names. Uh, well, there was no name level. for the there was no name for the element. It was the Hanover Elementary, and and then okay. it was Junior High. I think back then. I don't think the right. term of middle school really. Came about. So you were a you were, you were an actress in at Hanover and High. At Hanover High, yes, I was an actress. And th- you did this for two years, three years, all throughout. When uh, I like sophomore, junior, you're senior, yeah. Until you're done, and then you decided you'd move to New York and be a waitress. Uh, well, then I went to college. That is a little stereotypical. Idea. Well, I did that too, but I went to college first, and where I acted and I made in theater. Go? I went to Wesleyan. Okay. Against the wishes of my father and mother. Against the wishes. Very much against the wishes. I had to, What's like, beg and plead. To go to school at all? Or, Wesleyan or? was considered, you know, crazy, liberal, wild. They were making drugs in the chem lab, which I think they were maybe in the 60s. As but opposed to Dartmouth 60s. in the age of Animal House. I get it. <clears throat> yeah, so I, they wanted me to go to Dartmouth. Yeah. But I... I you, anyway. needed to, you needed to head out of town. Yeah, I had to get out of town. So I went to Wesleyan and I majored in theater. Okay, so then you, you knew that's what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I didn't really think very much... You know, but about what I wanted of, to do because mm-hmm. I wasn't a big thinker. I just sort of it did just things. Yeah. I mean, I'd always done theater and I'd done summer stock, which mm-hmm. I, you know, what summer stock is. It's yeah. theater the summer and you do a lot of shows. Where was that? In North Conway, New Hampshire at the Eastern Slope Playhouse. I did four summers of summer stock and had a little theater tribe of people. 
Yeah. Um, so this is interesting. I was immersed in theater, basically. Right. I mean, I was just immersed. But you said you didn't kind of make a make a plan. You didn't think a lot about it. You just did. You did, and then you became, which I is actually quite uh, common. But it's very interesting. One of the things I've always been, many people are interested in, is how, why do people become who they become? Why do they do what they do? And some people, they fall into it, circumstance. Somebody gives you an opportunity. Uh, some people are really strategic. I'm always amazed at this when you see parents mm. that have been bringing up a kid to be an investment banker, and then they're actually an investment banker. And say, how the hell did that happen? And then they have how a nervous get- breakdown when they're like 50. <laughs> I, I don't know about that, uh, but uh, I don't know how the kid just kind of goes lockstep into the path that was set up for for them. Uh, but you see it occasionally, and then of course you see quite the opposite when they're all over the map and and kind of. Um, kind of just figuring out what, what they're going to do. And in your case, you you did, and then you became, which I think is the way people you know, talk about psychology. When you want somebody to change, the thing you, you, you need to do is to do something as opposed to, you know, behavior is more powerful than attitude. Right. So you could try to change attitudes, but that hardly ever works if you want people to change their lives or their behavior. Change your behaviors, and then you end up changing your attitudes, which is kind of interesting. That that's Well, I, I realized it later on, if I had been a boy, I'm sure my life would have been completely different because I think my parents would have tried to guide me more into something uh-huh. You know, very acceptable in society. As opposed to As theater. opposed to being a woman, yeah. Where I was, oddly, I think I was left alone to discover my path for myself mm-hmm. more because I was a girl. And for my parents, the the set of values was different for a female than it would have been for a boy. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is true. In other words, it was important for my parents... Raising a girl at that time in the 60s and right. 70s was that I be polite. Wow, that's interesting. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, let's, uh, let's, let's go back to the subject. I want to hear a little bit more about your thinking. Man, that was a pretty good segment, wasn't it? And I hope you're enjoying listening to Marisa and all the other episodes we have on the Sidcast. And I hope uh, if you are, you're telling your friends and your family and subscribing and uh, doing us a favor by uh, spreading the word. We, we'd love to build this community around the Sidcast, people that are interested in ideas, interested in how we are, who we are, became who we are, and, uh, and want to be part of, the, uh, part of the conversation. And by the way, you can go to, uh, go to the website, the podcast website, the Sidcast. Dot com, Sid, S-Y-D, the SIDCast.com. And if you have any comments or questions and things you want to uh, share with us, please uh, click on contact and, uh, and fill that out and we'll get back to you. We're interested in your ideas, any questions you have, and even any suggestions you might have for future guests. So we were talking about, so you were elaborating on how your parents, because you were a girl, a woman, a girl, girl. Was, and you were going a bit to what, what they wanted. Yeah, I was so, saying, I think sort of, I, I think ironically, I think I had more leeway about, uh, in order yeah, because, to find because my you path, were a girl because as, I was a girl. As opposed to a boy. And yeah. so what, what what was a girl supposed to do? What For your parents, let's say. What right, they, well, for my parents, who were wonderful parents. I'm not, this is not a criticism at all. Um, it's an observation. Mm-hmm. I think for my parents, it was important that I, uh, you know, hmm. Be polite and mm-hmm. look nice, mm-hmm. and um, you know, be a good person, be a kind person, and and a generous person, and do for others. And but the idea of having a you know having a well, what you're a saying career, is not like a high powered career, not career oriented, not career as much as uh, kind of the stereotypical playing a role in the social. Culture environment of very your, diplomatic your family done, and your yeah. community. Right, I try. A very good. Yeah, it wasn't. They weren't. <laughs> How many career people, driven in a way? Uh, so you had. Well, in your case, you know, going to theater, and as we'll talk about, you know, you've been very successful and done some really cool things. But I think about how many people, how many women, were brought up in 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 that era, which is going on, you know. Was a matter of decades, really, when, when the opportunities were there, and we didn't get. Not that there's anything wrong with being a nurse. But we got the nurse and not the doctor. Right, right. And the nurse, and we have a shortage of nurses. We need nurses. So it's right. not, <laughs> this is not about that nursing is a bad thing. But these are kids that probably thought at some point, you know, different era, I could have been doctor. I could have been a scientist. I could have been a this. I could have been a that. Right. And somehow, and it's still going on today, isn't it? I mean, not so much with parents, but, well, here's the question. 
because we talk about that a lot with our students and mm-hmm. Tuck and Dartmouth more generally uh, about opportunities for women. Half of our MBA students today are women, right. just about, which is unbelievable. It's fantastic. It's about time. Uh, and they don't think they have limitations, which right. is a great thing. Right. But um, many, but then you get into the workforce and you look at the data and you see, you know, fifty percent of uh, managers at, at early stage are women. And then you keep going up and up and up, and you go to forty, thirty, ten. And then you look at CEOs of Fortune five hundred companies, and you got like I don't know what the number, latest number is, you know, three or four percent. So something is going going on there. Yeah, it's called children having children. <laughs> That's what's going on. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. Yeah, having children and purposely going on a mommy track right. sometimes. But there are a lot of a lot of uh, women in business that they have children, but they also can afford to have a staff at home and nannies, right. etc. Right. And they want to keep working, but they often don't get. Um, there's a perception. See, I could see you don't like this line of argument. Uh, no, no, no! I'm listening. I'm listening. I think because I think there's a uh, I think there's uh, clear discrimination uh, against women in the workforce, uh, even even today. We were talking about discrimination almost. It's not even even the right word. People didn't know they were discriminating. Right, right. It was just the cultural mindset that says you know you you don't think about that. You don't do that. Uh, and you grew up in that era. And I, I guess what I'm saying is even today there's some version of that. Even though there are very few parents. You know, let's say our, our Upper Valley community or the Dartmouth community, very few parents who would impose on a child to say or wouldn't bring up a daughter. Uh, now, I'm not sure I'm 100% right about this, but wouldn't bring up a daughter to believe that she can do anything in the same way that they would bring up their son. The mm-hmm. But I think there's so many other factors at work. I think they're genetic factors. I think that men are naturally, you know, programmed DNA-wise, genetically, to be more aggressive, and if you want to be a CEO, you've got to be very aggressive. I mean, women aren't socialized still to this day to be as aggressive as men in general. And women I don't, aren't as comfortable, uh, I don't think, with aggression and competition at, in general as mm-hmm. men. It's I mean, true. The competition uh, uh, point is actually a lot of research on, about that. Yeah. I mean, women are not, and I really don't think it, I think it is programmed in your DNA, not so much uh, the socialization. I mean, there is the socialization part, but it's also what you're literally born with. I mean, I've seen this in theater. I mean, the women that that I've noticed who really are very, very successful, a lot of them have what are very aggressive in a way that correlates more with male behavior in general. I mean, I'm painting with a very, very broad brush. Right. They're, so, more, they're more aggressive, therefore they're more successful. Is that... Sometimes, yeah. I think so, because... It, it's not that aggressiveness makes you successful, but a lack of aggressiveness probably re- greatly reduces the odds of you being successful, because you're not willing to step up and say, here I am, and I'm taking you guys on. Yeah. And also women, I still think, are socialized not to cause a fuss, not to make ripples. You know, not to not to enter into conflict as much as men are. Even in 2019. Even in 2019, I think that it's again it's socialization, but I also think it's in your in your body. I think it's in your body. Women are not as programmed on a cellular level to be as conflict oriented and as aggressive as men are. That's my personal opinion. And, and the, so there's there are two things that that makes me think of. Num- number one. Um, this is an issue that um, what your perspective on this is an issue that often does not come out in, say, the MBA classroom because it's considered something you don't you, – it's, 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 it's innate and therefore it's nobody's fault. And people like to find fault with someone else uh, when opportunities are not there. And what I just said will piss off a lot of people also. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. Um, and, uh, and then, and then the, 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 the second thing is uh, – while aggressiveness as a trait uh, and competitiveness, let's call it, um, helps you advance and uh, makes you more likely to win, does it actually make you a more effective leader or a more effective manager? And the answer there is actually a lot more complex. I don't think it uh, it always does. It increases your odds of getting to the top, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean you're going to be more effective right. uh, when, when you're there, which is kind of That's ironic. Interesting. Yeah. That the skill set you need or the traits you need to move forward in life are ones that are not necessarily advantageous uh, for a 
accomplishing your, your fundamental goals. They're advantageous for you personally, mm -hmm. but not necessarily. Um, I'll give you a, a great, great example that this comes out of a lot of research on competitiveness that we're mm -hmm. talking about mm -hmm. and confidence mm -hmm. uh, between mm -hmm. men and women. Mm -hmm. There's a great book called The Confidence Code uh, that goes into this in a lot of detail and a lot of studies on it. And so now we're talking about ma a managerial situation, but I'm interested if you've seen it in your own mm -hmm. career as well. So you got, you got the, um, a, an opportunity is given to a woman and a man, same level in a company, mm. and the man hears the opportunity, says, I got it, I, no problem, I'm, I'm yeah. there. And the woman is going to be actually more thoughtful. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, what a mistake that is. And, and yes. it might be perceived as some degree of doubt. And so as a result, that woman is less likely either to take it or get it or get the next opportunity. And so when that starts to multiply over a period of time and then multiple people, who ends up at the top? And then I ask, what do you want in your CEOs? What do you want in your top managers? What do you want in your leaders? Do you want someone who says, yeah, no problem, I could do it, there's nothing I can't do? Or do you want someone who's more thoughtful? Yeah, who brings people together to solve It seems kind of obvious that you want that skill set that, again, we're being you know really broad brush, and, right. but a lot of research is completely consistent with this, so we're not making this up. Right. I think we're better off with more of the quote, female, unquote, traits right. at the very top of organizations. More consensus-oriented than... than uh, you know, relationship skills. Yeah. And we can get into artificial intelligence and what AI can't do, oh, which God. is relationship skills. But we want, I want to get back to you in but the theater. But one thing I do say to women who ask me for advice about stuff okay. or they have a problem or mm -hmm. somebody in my, you know, book group has a problem, sometimes I'll say to them, I'll say, you know something, in this particular problem you're having, why don't you step back and... This is so politically incorrect, but it works a lot. I'll say, just think like a man. What would a man do? Oh, boy. And, you know, so many times the answer, the solution is more direct, less agonized. Just think like a man. A man would just do and, it. And a man would just take it. A man wouldn't worry. See, that's the other thing. Women worry much more about what other people think of them than men do. I think, this is my observation, mm -hmm. women worry much more about that than men do. And that's what makes them hesitate to be, and I think men are more direct in general than women are. So this advice that you give to this... I, say, think, this, I wrote a 10-minute play, Think Like a Man. It was just performed. Think Like a Man. Think Like a Man. Okay, you give this advice in to person women. to someone, to a yeah. woman in your book club, and now you, write, you wrote a... a short play on the same thing, yeah. the implication is that actually women can do this if they want to do it. Of course. So it's not In fact, women, genetic, women can think social. like men. I don't think men can think like women. I think in a way women have the advantage <laughs> coming and going because if you tell a woman to think about this like a man, she'll know innately, immediately what you're talking about. It means All right. cut the crap. It means okay. don't worry about what people think. Mm -hmm. It means go after what you want and be direct. Think like a man. Okay, so test me out here. Give me an example oh where I have to think like a woman. Oh, you, God, it's too complicated. You said, because you said that men can't do No, it. it's this too complicated. <laughs> it's too complicated. Think like a woman. It's too. I can't even begin. It's right. just too it, complex. We'll, we'll get back to that before we're done. I'll give, you, I'll give your subconscious a chance to process, uh, process all. Let's get back to the theater again. Well, the theater. The theater. <laughs> okay, the so you graduated. graduated you went, from went to New York. Um, I went to New York. It was, like the, it was like a bad 30s movie, you know? I, <laughs> I'm going to be an actor, actress. Um, so I went to New York, and I... Wait a minute, in, in college, did you write plays or you perform? No, 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 I never wrote a play. Okay. I just was, I just acted, acted okay. and acted. And so you went to tryouts and all this, Broadway-type so things? No, no, no. I went to, uh, I went to New York. Uh, I found a great acting teacher, Wynn Hanman, incredible, still teaching today. He's the greatest. I love Wynn. Ended up publishing a book when I became a theater publisher, ended up publishing a book about his career. Hmm. Um, uh... Got fired as a waitress because I talked too much. Was no, I don't believe it. No, I know. It was the worst waitress. It was a Japanese restaurant. It was so awful. Japanese yet. They you, fired me. You should have gone so, to a southern restaurant. They like to talk. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I mean, I had no skills. I had no practical skills, you know. I'd been in place. Long so, live the liberal arts. Go ahead. Yeah, long live liberal arts. I had no practical skills. I could type. Um, but I could skate. This, now this is part oh two my. of the 30s movie. I could figure skate. So I took my skates, and I looked in the phone book then. We had phone books. They were books. That what's what's that? Books. Can you explain that concept for <laughs> your, our younger listeners? I know. No one knows what a phone book is. <laughs> and there were, um, there were like two or three ice skating rinks in New York. And I, I just I went to the one that was 
closest to where I lived on 74th and Lexington. It was called Archie Walker's Ice Studio. And it was on the second floor of a building. And I walked up to Archie Walker's, I, uh, Archie Walker's mm-hmm. Ice Studio. And I went up to the second floor with my skates in hand. Um, and You're going to tell me there was a skating rink on the second floor? It was. It was there until recently. There was a bakery, I a French bakery. I would not want it to live... And that first floor. No, it was a bakery. There was a business on the first. It was Lexington and 74th. You can look it up. It's, I'm completely telling you Somebody the truth. Somebody's going to look it up for us, yes. Yeah, it's not there anymore, but it was there until recently, okay, until okay. a few years ago. <clears throat> I, Archie Walker's Ice Studio, and I went in and I said, you know, talk about confidence and mm-hmm. innocence and mm-hmm. just, like, naivete. Yes. I said, hi, you know, <laughs> I can skate. Do you need a teacher? <laughs> I can't even believe it that I did that. And uh, Archie, Archie was a great guy. Had watched a lot of thirty movies as well, so he and, and he said, story. and he said, "Show me your stuff," you know. So I got my little skates on and I went around and you did skated. a couple of twirls and spins yeah, and, and all it. this stuff. And he hired me, and it was a great. And job. he hired you. Yeah. So I love this story it's a because great job. you, you. This is an example of something I've been preaching forever: don't ask, don't get. If you don't ask for something, you, there's no way you're ever going to get it. Right. Now, is that a man's way of thinking? Yep. Because you did it. Yep. Well, I have... I'm, you asked. I have male traits, you know, in a certain way, because I'm an only child. I think only children... Uh, this is another really, yeah. like, <laughs> politically incorrect, uh, completely broad stroke kind of observation, but I think that only children... And you have an only child. I do. Um, I have noticed... Only children, women, <clears throat> have a lot of those traits that I'm talking about because they grow up, you know, in mo- many cases, very beloved and sort of spoiled. Boy, that is interesting. And therefore, they have a certain confidence yeah. <clears throat> that allows them to just go out to and go do more try and get yeah, what they right, want right. and feel that they can do that. Um, do you think oldest children have a bit of that? I think so. Probably, yeah, right? Probably, yeah. Yeah, so this is an interesting uh, minor aside. So I have my students do a, um, an opinion column is what I call it. It's like an op-ed as one of their assignments for a course I teach. And one, uh, and I've been <clears throat> reading them lately, and one, one woman who's born in China, uh, uh, going mm. to school here in the MBA program, uh, and, she, and her opinion piece was about the difference between women in China versus women in America. And she actually said women in America, and her number one um, sample size was classmates, uh, were uh, much less aggressive. Oh, interesting. Um, were um, actually not far removed from what you described, you know, about, about the female traits. Of course, they were going to be successful. They were going to go do this and that. But they could, uh, they could imagine... Um, putting their would-be or future husband's career ahead of their own. Yeah. And this young woman, Chinese woman, who grew up as an only child, which is the one China policy, said the way she described as well, in China, you know, it's kind of like a unisex upbringing. The yeah. boys and the girls in opera are very much different. You only got one kid. You put everything into it. Yes, yes. I, that makes perfect sense. And I think there are many, many advantages to only having one child. But I can also tell you all the disadvantages. No, I don't want to talk about that. No? No. Because <laughs> my daughter's going to listen, and I think no, she's but it's great. good. No, 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 no. But it would be good for her to know, for the and, future. And you think she doesn't know? No, she might. I didn't know until I was married. I didn't realize certain things. Well, let's talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> They're not that bad, but we'll talk later. All right, now you have to share. What? G- give me oh, as an only child, you sort of don't realize that. It's a spatial thing. That the world does not revolve around. No, no, it's not so much that. It's I'm talking about, you, you know that because, you know, you've been alerted to that. Mm-hmm. But in terms of space, for example, at least my problem was I didn't realize that when I walked into a room that all the surfaces weren't mine to fill. Do you see what I mean? It's like a, it's, it's a, you don't even realize it. So I had to learn how to share space better mm-hmm. because I had never had to share space. I thought they teach you that in kindergarten. I don't know. Yeah, I don't like remember. Like that book, Everything I Learned in... I learned in kindergarten. But it basically, I think the advantage... Okay, how did we get on this topic of uh, only children, single... Oh, because I was talking about thinking like a man. Thinking like, okay. Because you went to um, so-and-so, the guy with the ice skating... Oh, ice skating, ...on the yeah. second floor yeah. of a building yeah. in New York, just, which I still... And he hired me, so, still so I got, had a job. Okay. And, and then so I started you, going to auditions, and, and they were all very invested in my career, the, the guys. They were all... Which guys? The guys at the ice studio, oddly, were all chorus boys from... Uh, the capades or the ice follies, except for one sort of weather-beaten old rockette woman who had platinum blonde hair. Wow. So it was me, the guys, 
the guys from the Ice Follies. These, these guys were also teachers? They teachers. Or? Yeah, they were the teachers, too. So this is like a yoga studio before they were... Uh, yeah, and it studios. was a real... I mean, I, I mean, I was... It was a real... I learned a lot, let me tell you. Yeah. About all kinds of things. For example, just give me one. Well, Off they the decided they needed to, like, make me over. I mean, I was this... A makeover. Know, from the well, the kid were, from Hanover. They were, you know, they were, you know, a bunch of gay guys from the Ice Follies. And so they needed to... So I got a lot of fashion advice and makeup advice and men advice and life advice. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it was it was sort of like a sitcom, and, but I didn't realize it. And they and were great. I loved them. Did you did you actually get some gigs in New York acting gigs? I did, I did, but um, I, I was I did get some work in New York um, and elsewhere. And I was in a few couple of movies. Really? I was. What were you in? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you knew I'd ask as soon as you brought that well, they, up. Uh, uh, well, there was, there was, well, I was in a movie that became a real cult. Before I moved to New York, actually, when I was still doing Summerstock, I was in a movie that became a real cult movie called The Return of the Secaucus 7, which launched John Sayles' career. And there were people in that movie who went on to have serious acting careers, including, including Gordon Clapp, who lives in Norwich. Gordon Clapp, who was in NYPD Blue for 12 years. Really? And he was in uh, The Return of the Sakaka 7. Mm-hmm. And a, a character actor named David Strathairn, who's done a lot of work, who was nominated for an Oscar for the Edward Murrow movie. Um, and it launched John's career, The Return of the Sakaka 7. Right. Um, but then, oddly enough, I was cast, uh, I was in a movie called Soup for One, which was. Uh, which was really a funny movie that was a lot of people from Second City were in that movie. Okay. Um, it was a comedy? It was I a hope. comedy, yeah. <laughs> I was Brenda, the dental hygienist. Um, I kept getting cast. I played a hooker on a soap for a few weeks. I played another hooker in another movie called, um, oh, God, I can't remember the name of it now. Anyway, I, basically I, got, I became disenchanted with acting. It was, I didn't like being an object. And this may have been back to my only child You weren't issue. used to that. I wasn't used to being an object. I wasn't used to people who I didn't really respect telling me what to do. Now, that's a problem if you're going to be an actor. Yeah. And um, I remember I had a callback. This was sort of a seminal moment. I had a callback for a show at Hartford Stage. And the callback was in a bar, which should have been the first red flag. Right. And the producer wanted to interview me in the bar. Okay, this was after I'd had, you know, an audition, and then my agent said, you have a callback, and um, so I went to this bar. It was in a public place, but I soon got the realization that I would get the part if I slept with him, and I was completely horrified and offended, and I stood up, and I said, I am sorry, but I do not believe in sex for sale, and I walked out, and as I was walking out, that's what I said, can you believe it? It was a really bad line. It was, and I walked out, and so, I thought, okay. I don't know if this is for me. I right. thought to myself, I don't. Right. And then my acting teacher said, "If you can think of your," and he, he was brilliant. I love love him. He said to the class, "If you can be think of yourself, if you can imagine yourself being happy, doing anything else but acting, do it. Don't act. Only act." if you feel it's the only thing that will give your life meaning and happiness. And the minute he said that, the minute he said that, I knew in my heart I wasn't, wasn't a wasn't real a, actor. Right. That, that, that's, a, I mean, that's a great line. And I'm thinking in the case of acting, because it's so hard and it's such a long shot, that you've got to be a million percent into it or else, you know. But now I'm also thinking, is that a, is that a line that makes sense for most careers? Uh, a lot of people compromise because, you know, you don't always get everything you want. Um, but imagine that we... I, I, do you think that would be a good thing to add to the repertoire of what we teach our teenage kids? You know, if you don't really, really love... Uh, what, what was the word? It wasn't that. If you, can ima- if you can imagine yourself doing something else other than managing this office, other than right. uh, being a, a, a doctor, other than being a teacher, you... Um, it's not for you. Yeah, well, it's it's... It's very powerful. It's very powerful. It really, it had a huge effect on me. Enormous. It was just, it just, I realized that I could be happy doing something else. And was that the end of the acting career? 
Not at that moment, no. But, but I soon. But the seed was. The was, seed was planted, was and then planted. the 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 thing in the bar was so seedy, right? And it was so awful in a way. I so mean, when you've been reading about and hearing about all the stuff with the Me Too movement over the last, well, it's been going on forever, it hasn't yeah. stopped, but it's been in the news a lot over the last year. Uh, you, what what do you say? Like nothing new here. It's just finally. Some, oh, there's some nothing of these guys new. Are, Some of these no. guys are being being brought out in front of the firing squad for a change. Yeah, yeah. And okay. also, they're, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about me, too, but that's a whole nother podcast. Oh, boy. Are you, you're angling for a return visit, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's a whole other. But I can only <laughs> suggest that you read the New York Times profile of this French comedian, a female stand-up. I can't remember her name. I just name. read that. It I was, loved uh, that. Not that long and ago. And I agreed with a lot of what she said. She's the one that... Um, the French haven't gotten, haven't plunged headfirst into the Me Too yeah. movement because the French understand subtlety and nuance. And nuance. And they know that if a man puts his hand on your thigh, it's not the end of the world. You say, could you take your th- hand off, mister? I don't have any patience for these women who are not able to, in a minor uh, skirmish with a man, just, you know... Leave, scream, move, whatever. Mm-hmm. The minor. I'm talking about the minor mm-hmm. skirmishes. And yeah. to pick your moments. I spent an entire Thanksgiving once taking a guy's hand off my leg. Really? Multiple times. Because I, I didn't want to, I didn't, I felt that I could suffer that, which was not a big suffering, okay? It was just annoying. It was like a fly. And the, the the alternative was to embarrass everyone in the room, right. <clears throat> including my hostess, who had gone to extreme measures to make a beautiful Thanksgiving. Right. So I just kept taking the guy's hand off. And finally, I just stared at him, and he got the message. And it was a, it became a funny story. I, didn't, I wasn't traumatized. You were not traumatized I by it. I have no trauma, yes. and I won't be triggered ever if I have to sit at a crowded Thanksgiving table. Oh, yeah, you, you, you won't be nervous from, from that. No, I won't. I'll live. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's get you back to, uh, back to Hanover. How'd that ever happen? You Hanover? Ba- yeah, you came back. So you were in New York for how long? <clears throat> Ten years, maybe. Ten years, okay. and were you married maybe. at that point? Because you had a kid when, when well, Luke was two. I had a two. first husband. Okay. I had my wonderful first yes. husband that I met at college. Well, we married young, a lot of parental pressure there mm-hmm. to get married because we were living together. It didn't go over very well with my parents. Married, got married at Rollins Chapel. Well, right in Hanover. Right in Hanover. Um, and uh, that was number one husband. Mm-hmm. How long did number one husband? Four years. We were married for four years. Really nice guy, lovely man. Mm-hmm. Um, but what ha- I never wanted children with him for some reason. And um, I did help his career a lot. You were quite young also. Very young. 20s. Yeah. Mid-20s we got married. I was 25 when we got married. And um, uh, Wynne Handman, my acting teacher, I kept bringing in material that my husband had written for monologues. And Wynne said, this is great material. Where is this from? So, oh, this will be good for, for, for business. I just realized this story. Okay. So when I said, oh, the material is, uh, my husband wrote the material. He's an, a member of a comedy group. And Wynn said, oh, I want to see more material. And so I kept bringing him more material. And then Wynn said, this is great. I want to produce the, this, this comedy troupe at uh, this series called Laugh at Lunch. He said, in fact, Marisa, I think you would be good to produce it. He had a sense that maybe I was mm. a good producer. So I segued at that moment, yeah. with his with Wynn's help right. from being an actor to a producer. And, and you actually did produce? Yes. I produced Laugh at Lunch at the American Place Theater, and it was a comedy group called Serious Business, and it included Winnie Holtzman, who went on to write the book for Wicked. Wow. So, and, and also my friend Jenny Allen, who's a wonderful writer, comic writer. She writes for The New Yorker. Um, she just wrote a book. I'm blanking on the title. Jenny Allen. I'm plugging Jenny Allen. Uh, so I went from, and I loved producing. I really liked producing. I discovered that I really had a pretty good knack for it, and I, I liked putting all the pieces together. So this, the acting teacher the acting teacher. could have produced it himself, I suppose, uh, gave it to you in a sense. Yes, he did. And encouraged you to do yeah. it, and which is what you know, great bosses or leaders do. Yeah, and he also knew I was on the fence about acting because we'd had a talk. I sure. said, you know, that comment you made sort of struck me to the core, right, even right. though I don't want it to. 
And he said, you have to listen to those messages. Right. You know, you got to listen. So, um, uh, so that was husband number one, and you husband produced one. some I produced of that, that work. Yep. And that was all in New York. Yep. Okay. And then, oh, and then after the Laugh at Lunch uh, production, um, one of the women in the comedy troupe and I decided to produce it off-Broadway, which at the time meant we had to raise $50,000, which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but Jill and I, Jill Larson was my producing partner, Jill and I raised the money $1,000 at a time with friends and family, and we produced this comedy review, which was called Serious Business, off-Broadway, at a theater called O'Neill's 43rd Street Cabaret, which was uh, the the cabaret space on top of one of the O'Neill brothers' restaurants. Mm -hmm. On 43rd and Broadway. Okay, so how'd that go? It was great. It was a complete education. I really learned how to produce then. We ran for almost a year, and wow. we, we could have stayed there, except the O'Neill brothers, um, one of whom just died, actually, uh, uh, lost their lease, so they had to close the restaurant. That's such a New York uh, thing. I know. Everyone's <laughs> always losing their lease. And we didn't have enough money to move the show. So did this show make money? No, we just broke even. We had enough money to keep it going, but we didn't have enough money to move the show. So I could imagine you'd stay, and after this you did stay a little longer in New York, but you could stay in New York and continue this producing. I was thinking of that. And in fact, Jill and I um, had brought in some, we were partners in business because we were producing partners, and we brought in a friend of Jill's named Eric to uh, help us with our next project. Okay, so Eric is a bit of a cue here for... I assume. Second husband. For second husband. Second husband. Okay, so you meet Eric, and you're, after a while, you decide to get married. Well, I'm the truth is... I'm cutting past a few things the, here, the, no the, doubt. the truth <laughs> is, uh, Eric and Jill and I started working together, and um, the truth is, and no one, I mean, is simply, it sounds a little crazy, almost insane, but my maternal instincts just went bonkers after a while. How old were you? 28 okay. at that point. Um, yeah, that probably had something to do with it. Mm. The mater- you know, mm. the pinball, the ovaries, the pinball machine of ovaries. Um, I wanted Eric's children. I wanted him to be the father of my children. That's another kind of uh, 30s movie here, <laughs> except they wouldn't have said it quite the same way. No, I just, I, I, it was, it was really, I wanted his kids. I know that sounds kind of crazy, but. I had identified the father of my children. That's how I thought of it in my head. And I actually told my first husband, David, and we're friends today. David and I are, are friends, and we've continued to be friends. Um, so you were, But you were married to first husband, David. Yes, and I discussed this with him, and we decided to... You decided to um, end the marriage. End the marriage. So that you can... <laughs> Um, marry, <laughs> marry, the yeah, the father, future of father of yeah. each, which in fact Talk he fulfilled crazy. that. He yeah. fulfilled that role immediately. Yep, immediately. Got we got married. I got pregnant and had Luke. Yep, it was crazy. I mean, I wouldn't recommend this yeah. way of living for most people. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you only go. You know, you only get one shot. You only at get it, right? one shot, and the, and I've told the kids this whole story. I mean, they know that they kind of got born, um, kind of in through the. Between the raindrops, do you know what I mean? You know that expression? I don't. They slipped in through the raindrops, the kids. Do you see, you see the image? I mean, it uh, wasn't, it was, I was on a very, very different track. Right. With a very nice man. Right. Who I had no real um, reason to divorce at all, except I met this other man and I wanted his children. Okay, so why, what was, what was it about the second man, Eric? Eric. That you wanted to, uh, that you, you... You wanted him to be the father of your children. I think, again, going back to DNA, maybe it's because... DNA, okay. I think that... Maybe this is all crazy, but I think I saw in Eric a lot of the things that I did not have. And I felt that the merging of our two enterprises... (laughs) Enterprises. ...would create a a, a good enterprise, good outcome... (laughs) You know wow, that's I mean? so interesting. I wonder if a lot of or many other or some other women have kind of the same kind of mindset where they're selecting the um, the father of their children, um, that that's their primary purpose in marrying. 
I bet it, I bet it's not an unusual thing. A lot of this wasn't as conscious as I'm making it out to be. You know, I mean, I felt mad, madly in love, and you know, there was all of that. But I do think that a lot of it was me being, you know, a baboon, and I saw this other baboon. You know, I mean, it was very primal, and I just thought that together. I mean, it was sort of in a in a way, it was so kind of ego centric in a way, like mm-hmm. oh, that our two enterprises would when make a you, great enterprise. I mean, it could have made an awful enterprise. I mean, who knows? You're I mean, talking about you know, you're, you're talking about a merger here. It's, I was talking uh, about a merger. Exactly, and some mergers sure and acquisitions don't work. It. Yeah, exactly. As well. But you know, two two beautiful children later, both grown up now. Yeah, actually, it worked okay. But I think it was fate. And uh, my first husband and I talked about this a lot, too, because he actually, he married soon after that, and his career took off soon after that because a friend of ours took a script of his to HBO. And we talk, David and I have talked about how none of this would have happened, you know, that that it was fate. It was fate for our friend Jean to take the script to HBO to launch Mm -hmm. David's career. And then David went on and had three children with a wonderful wife, and I had two kids, and... So we, we know, David and I have talked a lot about fate. and, um, and uh, Do you write about that in some of your plays? About this fate? Th- this theme about fate? No, actually I haven't. It's a good Seems story. like it's kind of in you as a central value or, or sensibility. Well, I think we all make a story of our life. Right. We make a narrative about our life that makes sense to us and also justifies our choices. So obviously for me to justify leaving the first husband, I have to have a pretty damn good reason. I think you're doing well in explaining that to everyone. Because, I mean, I have to justify it to myself because it's not a good thing to do, you know, without cause. Um, And what better justification can you have than to bring two lives into the world that, you know, wouldn't have... So I'm curious about how your personal life and experiences have informed your, your writing. And of course, it does, it has to, in all sorts of ways. But I'm, uh, and, and I could tell you, you think about things a lot. You're very introspective. Um, uh, to what extent are you consciously doing this, purposely doing this, saying, you know, this happened to me and this kind of thing. And, and it's not that you're going to tell exactly the same story, but you right. use that as the kind of the, the, the raw material, the building blocks to create a story. So is that is that kind of in your stories, or are they kind of flights of uh, of fantasy and magic? I mean, where are they coming from? These these plays. Um, I think a lot of writers write in order to make sense out of their own lives, in order to investigate their own lives, not necessarily head on, like with a you know working with a psychiatrist or you know writing a journal, but. I think a lot of writers write, and I think I write to some extent to do this too, to understand and investigate my own life from different perspectives. Sure. In a way. Sure. Um, so do you have any examples of specific plays or, or themes of plays that really connect to this? Because uh, I'm really interested in, the, in kind of so where ideas come from, the creative process, right? And what you're saying, I think, which is right, is one part of where it comes from is people try to make sense of their own lives. Right. And that's a channel towards what they're trying to do. And I think many people's career choices actually have a lot to do with that same process. Uh, like <laughs> only somewhat facetiously what your father said about psychiatrists, that they're all crazy. <laughs> that's actually been my experience as well. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and because they're <laughs> crazy, <was> right. <laughs> they want to learn and, and they want to understand what this kind of how their brain works and how their brain ticks. I mean... We're we're you know we're we're way beyond generalizations now. We're in yeah. the stratosphere of that. <laughs> but actually, I have observed that over the years. Yeah. And one of my absolute closest friends is now passed. Uh, was a, a psychiatrist, so I have a, a psychoanalyst, no less. So oh, there's always wow. another level of depth. Uh, so I'm very interested in the creative process, where it comes from. And so, could you share a little bit about about that in your case? Um. Usually, uh, an idea for a play comes f- uh, out of something that bugs me. Something that irritates me, annoys me, makes me angry. And you want to get it out of your system. And I want to or investigate want to it. I want, oh, but it's a motor. It's a motor for the writing. Anger. Anger is a great creative motor. I mean, anger is a wonderful hmm. motor creatively. Um, quick thing to show you. A play I wrote called Saving Kitty came out of an experience I had at a dinner party 
where there were people at the dinner party who were speaking very, very you know, liberal, educated Dartmouth folk speaking very negatively about an evangelical uh, Christian family in the community that they didn't know, but they, they just knew that they, they were evangelical. They didn't like the values. They didn't like the that values. Okay, and that I felt was very hypocritical given their liberal, tolerant position about everything else. Why are they picking on the evangelicals? They don't even know and these people. Did, did you say something about that during the dinner party? And, um, or just kind of be, wasn't worth the trouble? I don't think I did speak about it because I was really listening and I was kind okay. of shocked. Yeah. And I was afraid to open my mouth a little bit because uh, that's socialization. If I were a man, I would have said something. Maybe not. <laughs> Sometimes said. you're outnumbered and you've got to you know, <laughs> live to fight another day. Right, right. So I went. that was the seed of a play that became a very funny play. Sure. Um, and what was that one called? That was called Saving Kitty. Saving Kitty. And um, that that it's a, it was a I think it was a successful play, um, and it it was funny. Uh, so that is some, an okay. example of it was a comedy, and that was an example of of, of how of something that that bothers me. Another play that I did at Northern Stage uh, three years ago, Mad Love, uh, came about. Um, because of issues having to do with fraternity culture and the hookup culture mm -hmm. and the sort of emotional dislocation that I've noticed in millennials and the inability sure. for millennials to sort of connect on a real level. So that was percolating inside me. Uh, those issues were percolating inside, and so I created a romantic comedy about right. about that. Yeah. Um, so as you're sharing those examples, I'm thinking, well, everyone has a path, and, and, and they get they get wherever they're going. Not necessarily what they intend, but they're getting somewhere. In your case, you wanted to be a playwright at some point. That's kind of where your creative out, uh, outlet was going to be. And you've done it, and you continue to do that. And I'm thinking, well, someone listening that would like to be a playwright or an actor or an actress or a producer, um, I know there's no formula for this, um, but what could you, what could you say? Um, how? Well, it's really simple. I mean, playwriting is all about dialogue. If you can write dialogue, you can write, write a play. I, I, you can learn about the other things that you need to do in order to write a play, I think, is what I'm saying. But you really have to be able to write dialogue. How and that has learn? to. How, how do you learn? You don't learn it. You either can do it or you can't. I don't really believe you can teach someone how to write dialogue. I think it's sort of an innate ability. Um, and I didn't set out to become a playwright at all. It was completely right. not intended. And it, it was a it was the silver lining of a of a difficult situation. My younger son was didn't like school. I was bugging him. And Eric, my husband, said, "You're bugging him. You have a great relationship. Stop bugging him. You're going to ruin your relationship." I said, "Okay, fine. I'm going to leave after dinner during homework period. I'll go to the library." And I got there and I said, "What am I going to do now?" Right. So I wrote a play. So that was the the great thing that came out of you just you wrote know, a play. Well, I started to write a play, play, like very badly. You realize that would not be the most common thing most people do no, when they no. head out of the house to go to the library. So no. you had that in you. Yes, I did. But advice for, for playwrights, yes. is that what your real question is? Um, read plays and go to plays. Yeah. You've got to read them all. You've got to read great plays, bad plays, mediocre plays. You have to go to plays. You have I think to, that's the you same You have to immerse advice. yourself yeah. in, the, in the whole world. It's the world. same advice for writers. You know, you read. You yeah. read. It's the same, same yeah. thing, right? Um, even at a kind of kind of a weird level of writing, let's say academic writing, which I've done a lot of, um, a long time ago, like when I was even a doctoral student, um, you know, you read all these journal articles and you analyze it and you try to get the ideas and then you say, well, okay, what, what could I do to create something new around that? I, I did all that because that's what you do. Yeah. But I also remember going back and rereading my favorites of these articles oh. to try to dissect the writing pattern. Exactly. What did they do? How did they tell that story? Why is this article so interesting, uh, independent of kind of their findings? Right. Um, and um, I tell that to aspiring academics, young academics now all the time, and nobody seems to do it. It seems <laughs> like kind of obvious to do that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a reverse perfect engineering, advice. Right? It's the per exactly yeah. reverse engineering. Why, it, what happens in, to make Death of a Salesman, you know, work, you know, yeah. And, but for playwrights, it's so tricky. I mean, you have to be able to write dialogue, and you have to find your own voice somehow. So you have to be, you can't look at yourself, because playwriting is the subconscious and the conscious working at the same time. What does that mean? Well, as you're writing, you have to be able to, you know, write, but you, you, you have to be steered in a way by 
the, your subconscious writer. It's like yeah. you have a conscious writer and a subconscious writer, and you have to, you have to, there's, you have to have a certain freedom. I do, I do know what you're talking about. The psychologists call that concept flow. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Right, which is you're, you're channeling what you have inside of you, but you're actually producing it. You're not just sitting there, you know, meditating. You're actually doing something. Um, physical writing or whatever that could be art could be could could be any. Type oh, of I do have it. one great piece of advice. I think is really good Go for, for aspiring writers, and it helps fl- with flow and it helps free you up. Write the worst version of this scene that you can possibly do. The worst. The worst version, and I say that to myself all the time. I, if I'm stuck, I'll say, "Oh, screw it. Sorry, forget it. I'm just going to write the worst version of this scene," and. You know, a scene is, if it's a dramatic scene, you have to have an, it has to have conflict, there has to be an obstacle, somebody has to have, want something and someone has to try to prevent them from getting it. I mean, you can read all about how to construct it, but write the worst version of the scene. And what will happen is there will be, there will be nuggets in there. That won't be so worst. That won't be so terrible, or maybe just a line or two, but it will, the motor, will get the motor going. Yeah. Because you want to, you want to, most writers, it's not writing, it's rewriting. That's true. That's true know. for science, in fact. It, yeah. Almost every innovation is a recreation of other things, is a reinvention. Yeah, and they're, it's aggressive. Yeah. Do you see all these things we're talking about mm-hmm. are aggressive? Well, they're conscious, they're proactive, right? They're strategic. Yeah. yeah. You're not just kind of sitting back and hoping some genius idea. Oh, it's forget your, it. Writing is, you know, putting yourself in the chair and just spewing yeah. it out and then editing it. Yeah, writing is rewriting. I think that's uh, absolutely true. And if that And if that is true, which it is, what does it tell you about how to start? The way to start is to start. You just write it. Yeah. And so it's, I, I like what you, what, the way you put it, write your worst scene. Yeah. Um, when I'm writing, I'm writing, I just write. I don't care whether it's good or bad. See, I, but that's why you're good. So it's because you just write. And it turns out actually some of it is good. Yes. And some of it gets trashed, but that's fine. Most it's of all it. Part most of, of it should get trashed. Yeah, well. You can't <laughs> judge yourself. You can't comment on yourself. And it's, you can't be precious about it. And that's the other thing. And a good playwright will throw away everything. I love throwing. I love being in rehearsal and just saying, no, cut that. Let's get rid of it. I hate that. Cut it. And what, out, do, you, what out. do you do in that situation? You have to rewrite something to yeah, replace it? Yeah, and then it. you rewrite yeah. it or you cut it or you do something. But, yeah, you have to be very flexible. And you have to be confident. Hold on to Don't you have to be confident to do that? Because you throw out the stuff you've been working so hard on, maybe nothing else is going to come up. And you don't even imagine oh, that's yeah. going to Of course something will come up. And also, if it's, I mean, you can use something in another place, or maybe it was crappy to begin with. Or right. you, can't, you can't love your work in a weird way. I mean, you can't be attached to it. It's its own thing. It will evolve on its own. You know, there's a lot of actors that I've read about who they don't want to see the final movie. You know, because you're, when you're performing, you do different scenes, different things. You don't know how the editor, the, the director is going to put on yeah. They don't even want to see themselves at yeah. the end, which is, uh, it's not exactly the same, but it's, uh, it's analogous. So um, you have a play opening very soon, don't you, Marisa? Oh, what you. is it? Yes. Let's do a little plug. <laughs> a plug. It's called Venus Rising. And uh, it's about a woman who uh, leaves her husband and moves in with her mother. It's a mother-daughter comedy. And her best, and she moves in and decide, discovers her mother is living this life that shocks the daughter. Shocks? Shocks In a, in a the daughter. good way or a bad way? Or well, about a both? you have to come and see I it. I gotta come and see it. Good okay. answer. <laughs> and and uh, so it's, 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 a, it's a comedy. But it's about mothers and daughters and best friends. And, and it's about whose life is it anyway, to completely steal the title of a very successful play that was right. done. Right, way back. So, um, where's the, where's the Northern play? Stage, Northern the stage. new Northern Stage in White River, the wonderful Northern Stage. It's fantastic. The, the fantastic Northern Stage. January thirtieth is our first preview. Come and see it. It's a four character comedy, no okay. intermission. People like that, no mm-hmm. intermission. Yeah, especially Upper minutes. Valley. You know, <laughs> Upper Valley nine thirty ten. I mean, it's very very late. You got to be oh, in bed forget by it. that. Forget <laughs> it. Forget it. Um, so uh, this is great. Let's let's end with um, um, some word association. Okay. Okay. Oh, I didn't God. I didn't actually write them down, so I'm going to invent them myself. Oh my God! Uh, which amazing. I don't know what I'm going to say, but um, okay. So um, I'm scared. Uh, don't be scared. Uh, okay, we'll make we'll start easy. I think New York City theater Hanover. Store spawned. <laughs> okay, that's actually a really good. I, mean, that's I have a no really idea good, why I uh, said that. Uh, that's that's the, the subconscious and the con. So many things <coughs> must have happened at Store Spawn. Exactly, um, Venus Rising. Oh God, I just totally blank. Um, Northern <laughs> Stage. 
Nor- <laughs> I mean. Northern stage, okay. Um, I actually was going to say Botticelli, but I, 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 I don't know. Botticelli. Oh, because <laughs> of Venus. I, Got it. Because I just saw the, I just saw some of the set. Anyway. Okay. Um, love and marriage. Men. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's what comes to mind. Well, that's 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 uh, that's legit. Um, and uh, let's say um, the 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 next step in your life, and this can be more than one word because God, that could be a whole other podcast too. But if you were going to describe or an adjective for that next stage, because there's always another stage for creative people. Mm. I mean, more. And more interesting and more dynamic writing and plays. I guess I'm looking. I mean, it sounds so corny. I guess enlightenment. I've always been yeah. looking for like more, you know, enlightenment, yeah. more react. And I think that's one of the only good things about getting older is that the veil lifts a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The the clouds clear, mm-hmm. the fog lifts, whatever. You know. Well, it's metaphor. just very different as you get older. You're you don't you're not you're not striving in the same way. Yeah. Um, you could be more mindful, as everyone talks about mindfulness. And my experience with creative people is that they crave crave creativity as a true drug and that they mm. want to always do something different, um, a little bit different. And it could be a different play, could be a different type of play in your case, or it could be something totally different as well. Well, I realized that what Wynn Hanman, my old acting teacher, said to me, said to us in class about yeah, acting, yeah. I finally landed on something where I don't think I could be happy if I weren't writing. That's right. I really don't you, you, think that I really, it's not, it, it's a compulsion, really. And it's, uh, at this point in my life, it's a, it's a life raft. You know, it, it makes, it really is a, is a right. raft. So your, your writing fits what, you know, the old acting teacher yeah. told you. You can't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. yeah. Marisa Smith, thank you for being here. <laughs> thank you, here. Sid, this was really fun. Fantastic. You're thank great, you. you're thank great. You.